these are some very important questions. And we finally, frequently find ourselves asking questions about why the way things are in our lives. I'm sure you do because I do myself. I, I sometimes wonder why am I facing this? Why am I going through this or that? And we also find ourselves questioning if something found in Scripture applies to us. Does, does this apply to me or does it just simply apply to the situation in which they found themselves? As long as one is asking questions, there's an inquisitive mind seeking God's will. And I want to encourage you to be the kind of person who thinks about questions, who asks questions, even if you just ask them of yourself. Even if you say there's something in the Bible I want to know more, and you're going to try to consider it. We have two questions tonight, and the first one is 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 15, or verse 5, excuse me. Please explain what this verse means. Should women wear coverings? during services. Let me read 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 5. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is one of the same as if her head were shaved. Now, let me take just a moment or two to try to explain the context in which this passage appears. It's always essential whenever we're studying to try to understand the background of what's happening. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, there are numerous things going on in the assemblies that God's not happy with. And Paul addresses these. Notice particularly verses 17 and 18. Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you were come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I in part believe it. When you and I come together as a body of believers, and we're having a service of devotion to the Lord, we ought to be doing what God wants, the way God wants it done, and make sure that everything that is a part of our worship is pleasing to God in our lives. This related to what women were doing in some of those assemblies. So this is primarily relating, first of all, to them and their role. What we do know is that some possess spiritual gifts. He said every woman praying or prophesying. Now, what you have to realize is, is that they had been warned not to practice that in a mixed assembly. Here you have a woman who has the gift of prophecy. And when that woman comes into the assembly where there's both men and women, she has some restrictions. In 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26, How is it then, brethren, when you come together each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. That's why they're coming together. Get to verse 34. Let the, your women keep silent in the churches, for it is they are not permitted to speak. But they are being dismissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. 
You have a, a mixed assembly and you don't put a woman in front of the audience and say, here I am to deliver a prophecy from God. That limitation is given there. This is the rationale behind the prohibition given in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. If you'll remember just a few weeks ago in our classes, we studied 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. He says, I desire therefore that men pray in every place, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. And when he says men, he's talking about the men males. But then when he says likewise that the women also adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with braided hair or costly clothing, but that which professes women uh, professing godliness through good works. But then you get to verse 12 and he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. So you know that there are some restrictions going on here. Women were placed in submission by God. That's not Tony's doctrine. That's not this church's doctrine. That's God's doctrine. And you find the explanation of that in verses 3 through 12 of this context. So if you will, let's go to that context and look. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ and the head of a woman is man and the head of Christ is God. And every man praying or prophesying having his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head for it is one and the same as if her head was shaved. For if a woman is not covered... Let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head since he is in the image of the glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason... The woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is a man independent of a woman nor a woman independent of a man in the Lord. For as the woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman. But all things are from God. If you will notice that section of scriptures, you emphasize there the headship and the roles that God has placed. Now, I want to make a very, very important observation here. It says that the head of Christ is God. Is Christ inferior to God? No. Do you remember first, or John chapter 1, verse 1? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Do you remember Philippians chapter 2, verse 5? It says, have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus who thought it not robbery to be equal with God. You see, he is of the same essence, but he is in that position of putting himself in submission to the Father. But then he says that Christ is the head of man and the man is the head of the woman. And so for that reason, we respect these levels of authority. Now, being specific, evidently the women were praying or prophesying 
in an assembly only of women. That's the only place that they were authorized to do that. In doing so, they were laying aside the veil, perhaps to show their independence. To say there's no men here now, so we don't have to worry about the wearing of the veil. It's not something that we should, and we can say we can do as we please now. Now here's the problems with her actions. Her behavior was observed by the angels. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 10, for this reason the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now someone says, well, what do angels have to do with this? Angels are God's observers, if you will, of what is taking place. You know, if a person repents, Luke 15 says there's joy in the presence of the angels of heaven over one sinner who repents. So, yes, the angels observe. Matthew 18, verse 10, Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who's in heaven. They're angels. They're angels who observe what is taking place. And even though no men may be in the assembly in which these women, God has the angels looking, and they ought to respect that. She was failing to show respect for her husband and thereby had become contentious. And I... Put the word contentious in quotation marks. In verse 16, But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. And the idea of what Paul is trying to say, trying to flaunt, you know, trying, we would say now about they're trying to pick a fight. They're trying to create a situation. She was participating in behavior that associated her with immoral women. Now here's where you start coming and understand the cultural background of a specific situation in Corinth. The women in Corinth who went about with their head uncovered represented that they were immoral women. It's just like today. I don't know how many of you know about the wearing of earrings on men. I always heard that if it's left is right and right is wrong. That if a man wears an earring in his left ear, that that says that he is straight. If he wears an earring in his right ear, that says he's a homosexual. I'd say no Christian man ought to ever wear an earring in his right ear. Because that that just shows he's saying, hey, I, I don't, you know, I want people to know who I am and what I am. Well, women who uncovered their heads in Corinth were associated with all those temple prostitutes who were from that temple that was on the top of Acro-Corinth up there. Verse 6 says, For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it's shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered and let her do that. Now, what's the meaning for us today? Well, today, veils are not a symbol of authority. Nor are they symbols of godly women versus ungodly women. That has nothing to do with the way people are today. Women, however, should remain within a submissive role within the assemblies of the church. 
That's God's will. That's God's plan. And you should be careful about how your behavior affects others in the assembly. If we say something, we do something, or we conduct ourselves in such a way that brings shame on for a woman or husband or those of us who are men, shame upon Christ, then we ought not do it. We ought to avoid it. Or if it's something that we ought to do, we must do it as well. I probably could spend more time on that, but I've got a second question that I think is probably very interesting to at least to the person who had asked it. I'm struggling with being pessimistic about everything, and it affects my work, friends, and my faith. Can you give some spiritual guidance? I feel sympathy for the person who asked this question. And it must be a much larger problem than many of us realize. I say that because this year I know of three different congregations that are offering lectureships dealing with depression and pessimism and negativity and things such as that. And so it certainly needs to be addressed. Whenever a person suffers from any problem, it's always best to seek the cause. And I believe the Bible teaches for every effect you have an adequate cause. And what you've got to do, you've got to look and try to find the cause for it. I will tell you in my experience, and that's all I can speak from is my experience, the cause can be a medical one and you may need to see a physician. You know, in Matthew 9 and verse 12, Jesus said those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. And if a person has a medical issue, you can quote scripture to that person all day long, but if the issue is medical, that will not solve it. You know, it's like a person who has diabetes. I can look at you and say, be healed. You know what will happen? Absolutely nothing. I can tell you that you ought to read the scriptures, but do you know what that will do for your diabetes? Jesus said those are sick and need of a physician. Some, I'm not saying all, some issues of pessimism, depression, are medical issues that relate to the chemicals in your body, and you may need a doctor to evaluate that. The cause may be due to an attitude of heart. You see, I'm not saying all of them. In fact, I'll tell you sometimes pessimism and negativity may be due to a heart issue. You remember what was read to us by Jameson just a few minutes ago? Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. Can I become a person with a bad heart? I can. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Sometimes I can go through life and I can be going through things and not realize that it's my heart that's causing that issue. In Psalm 139 verses 23 and 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You see, a person has to step back and say, is this my issue? 
Is this something that I can do something about? Well, I think it's valuable to take some biblical examples and say, let's look at those people and see what was within them. Now, let me introduce Elijah to you. In 1 Kings chapter 18, there was a drought that had occurred for three years. Elijah had prayed that it would not rain, and it did not rain. James chapter 5 speaks about that as well. What takes place is there is a contest between the prophets of Baal, whom Ahab and Jezebel had encouraged, and the prophets, uh, prophet of God, Elijah. And you know what happened when they had that great contest on top of Mount Carmel? God's fire licked up the sacrifice, the altar, and the water in that altar from Elijah's sacrifice, while those prophets of Baal ended up screaming, hollering, cutting themselves all day long. And it was proved that God was the true God, Baal was a false god, and the prophets of Baal were slain. What takes place, you get to the first part of 1 Kings 19, and uh, Jezebel has said, I'm going to take the life of Elijah. What does Elijah do? It says he ran for his life in verse 3. He went to Beersheba. Now, Mount Carmel's up here near the top part of Israel. Beersheba's the very lowest part. He goes into the wilderness on a day's journey in verse 4. He came and sat down under a broom tree and he prayed that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life for I'm no better than my father's. Now I want you to see the pessimism that takes place, the depression, if you will, in the life of Elijah. He eats there, and then if you'll notice, it says in verse 8, He arose, ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. Now he's no longer at Mount Carmel. Now he's not even at Beersheba. He's gone all the way to the foot of the Sinai Peninsula to Mount Horeb, Sinai. And there he went into a cave, and he spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Let me tell you where Elijah is at. He's pessimistic about the good in this world. He's pessimistic about himself. He thinks, I'm the only one left. There's nobody but me. You talk about feeling isolated and alone. He was in a cave in Horeb. And so it was when Elijah heard that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And suddenly the voice came to him saying, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, host." God of the host, because your children have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with sword, I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Verse 18, yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. 
you know what God is saying to Elijah? You need to get up and realize you are not alone. You are not alone. I'm going to tell you, it's very easy for those of us in our homes, in our work, and yes, even in the church, to get to the point where we feel like I'm alone trying to do the right thing. And God's message to Elijah is you're not alone. You just need to open your eyes and see that there are others trying to do what is right. Oh, I have such a temptation to want to expand on some of these, but let me give you a second. The psalmist, Psalms 116, verses 10 and 11, and I'm not even going to take Psalm 73. I put the scripture up there so you can look it up yourself if you so desire. Psalmist says, I believe, therefore I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. I said in my haste, All men are liars. The more you think about what the psalmist said there, I'm greatly afflicted. Everybody else is a liar but me. It's very easy for us to get pessimistic because we look and we see the faults in everyone else. You know, if I'm at work, And I'm trying to answer the question as best I can. If I'm at work and I look over here and this guy works with me, I say, boy, he's not doing his job. He's not carrying his load. Well, this person over here, she's not doing her job. She's not carrying her load. You know what I'm doing? I'm spending all the time looking at them instead of doing my job. Maybe I need to step back and spend less time evaluating everybody else and evaluate myself. And the family, it's easy to look at others and say, this is their problem, that's their problem. What's my problem? Job. Oh, you could spend a whole quarter in the life of Job. Job chapter 10, verse 1. My soul loathes my life. I will give free course to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. Dropping down to verse 15. If I'm wicked, woe to me. If I'm righteous, I cannot lift up my head. I'm full of disgrace. See my misery. You know what? Job was having a really bad day. No, he wasn't. He's having a really bad period in his life. He'd lost his family. He'd lost his wealth. He'd lost his health. Even his wife was telling him to curse God and die. You want to tell you what? You can find yourself in a world where everybody around you is negative. Everybody else around you is complaining, groaning, and you can find yourself saying, Well, if I'm wicked, woe is me. If I'm righteous, I can't lift my head. doesn't matter if it's a good day or bad day. My life is misery. Solomon would say in Ecclesiastes 1 and verse 2, Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity, all is vanity. 
But I wanted to use the last one of the spies. You go to Numbers chapter 13, and there's a whole long section there about going and spying out the land. You know what? They came back and they told uh, Moses about the land. They said, oh, it is a beautiful land. It flows with milk and honey. Verse 27, this is its fruit. You look at it. Verse 28, nevertheless, people dwell in the cities. Our land is strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, the descendants of Anak are there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites dwell in the mountains. The Canaanites dwell by the sea along the banks of the Jordan. You look, there's people everywhere. And Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let's go up at once and take possession of it, for we're well able to overcome. But the men who had gone up with him said, We're not able to go up against the people, for they're stronger than we. Sometimes someone comes along and they offer you a word of encouragement. And what do you have? Somebody says, no, that won't work. That won't work. That won't work. Those ten spies were able to persuade the majority. We can't do it. I ask you the question, are you a a part of the Joshua and Caleb crew, are you a part of the other tens crew? Let me offer some what I believe is biblical advice. Learn to trust that God knows what he's doing even though I may not. In the life of Job, yes, the day that Job was going through was a tough day, a tough period in his life. But God could see the end from the beginning. God could see where things were going. Romans 8 and verse 28 says, We know that all things work together for good to those who love God and those who are the called according to His purpose. How is it working together? I don't know today, but I know that God knows what's going to take place. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13, No temptation is overtaking you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. God knows what Tony can take. God knows what you can take. God also provides a means, a way to get through that. Isaiah 30 verse 18, Therefore the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you and therefore he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you. For the Lord is the Lord God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. Psalm 27, 14. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Today may be tough, but I know the God of heaven and I know the God of heaven has a better day in sight for his people. And here's something that's hard to hear. Really, it's hard to hear. One may be simply reaping what he has sown. Do you know what I have observed in preaching? If I get up and I deliver a real negative sermon without holding out a an encouragement for hope. Do you know how the congregation responds? 
negative. You know why? Because all you have provided is negativity. You didn't say there's a future, there's a hope, there's a possibility. Hebrews 12 verse 15 says, Looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. And listen to this second part. Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Root of bitterness. Somebody becomes bitter, and what happens? Pretty soon they make somebody else bitter. What happens? They make someone else bitter. So whether it's in the church or in the home or in my family, maybe if everybody is complaining to me, it's because I'm complaining to them. Proverbs fifteen thirteen: A merry heart makes a cheerful countenance, but by sorrow of the heart the spirit is broken. By sorrow of the heart the spirit is broken. You can break the spirit of yourself. You can break the spirit of your family. You can break the spirit at work. I can't tell you how many times I went to work in the first year after Credit and I got married at a business. And uh, there was one really, really, really negative person there. And when I put my key in the door to go in there, I dreaded going in. And when I come home, I wasn't a very pleasant person because of all that all day long. Now, let me tell you something. The same thing can happen in your family as well. Learn to have faith in God. Learn to turn things over to Him. In Philippians 4, verse 6, Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. Mark 9, verse 23, If you can believe, all things are possible for the one who believes or him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. Sometimes it requires us to say, Lord, I see it. I see what the scriptures say. I need some encouragement to believe more deeply more strongly the best questions are the ones that make us dig for the right answer we need to be focused on asking the right kinds of questions some of them are not worth anything 2 Timothy 2.23 avoid foolish and ignorant disputes knowing that they generate strife but the greatest question that still remains is what must I do to be saved because after everything is said, after everything is done, when I stand before the God of heaven on the day of judgment, what's going to count is whether or not I have been obedient to the gospel plan of salvation, whether I believe that Jesus is the Christ, whether I have repented of my sins, confessed my faith in Him, and been baptized. And what will matter is whether or not I have lived faithfully before Him. We're going to sing the song of encouragement. Lord, I'm coming home. If you need to respond, would you come as together we stand and sing?